Welcome back to Sleep for Performance Radio. This is episode number 17 today. And I'm speaking with Mr. John Paul Kea. As you hear in this episode, I had a lot of trouble pronouncing John Paul's last name and uh, also getting his first name right as well. Anyway, thank you to JP for joining us today via Zoom uh, from Brisbane with the University of Queensland. Now, JP does some really interesting research and it's very similar to some of the rugby research that I've done with the exception that John Paul's research is predominantly in rugby league but it's about sleep and recovery and performance. Currently JP is uh, completing his PhD at the University of Queensland and is examining sleep and recovery methods in professional rugby league athletes and he's working with the Brisbane Broncos. Prior to this John Paul did a, uh, completed a bachelor's degree and a first-class honours in human movement from RMIT University in Melbourne. And then he went on to complete his master's degree in health and sports science at the University of Memphis, or University of, yeah, University of Memphis. Uh, John Paul has got an extensive sports science background. He's worked with many different teams in AFL to rugby and many more. And um, he's got a great insight into uh, sleep and recovery, particularly at these elite levels. In this episode, we talk about a number of different aspects of sleep and we really delve into JP's research and his findings. In the show notes we put many of these links in here for, for those of you that are scientifically minded or enjoy the scientific research. A couple of papers we discuss here is about sleep, um, self-perceived sleep and how that compares against activity monitors, so like a Fitbit type device. We also look at the intra-individual variability in sleep of senior and junior rugby league. And also we speak about sleep disorder breeding um, in rugby league players. And this is really important, this last one, because there is very, very little done in relation to sleep disorders in elite athletes. So um, Andrew Scott, John Paul, Riley Forbes and Vince Kelly have done an amazing job with this paper and uh, should be commended on this work. It is great that they're doing such work. and. Um, it's been great to talk to JP about this. This was a, a very kind of a geeky episode for me and I really enjoyed it because we really delved into the research. Um, I do want to apologize about some of the sound issues. We had some internet dropouts during this episode, which we tried to clean up in the post-production editing. And also we had to change, JP had to change rooms a little uh, a few times as well. Hopefully this comes across and the information is, uh, is valuable. And um, yeah, pertinent to those of you out there. This is really an episode that researchers will really enjoy. So, hope you enjoy the episode. As always, the episode notes will be over at sleepforperformance.com.au. Don't forget you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Podbean. And if you have any feedback or any questions or you'd like some different guests on or different information, just drop me an email at iandunikin at sleepforperformance.com.au. I look forward to hearing from you. Enjoy the episode. Okay, John Paul, welcome to Sleep for Performance Radio. Thank you for having me. So, is it JP, John Paul, just John? How do we how do we say it? Yeah, it's a good question, and um, 
it's one that causes a bit of controversy occasionally. So my name is actually John Paul. Um, it's not hyphenated. There's not a capital P. Um, there's no space in between, and I can be a little bit touchy at times. So uh, it's John Paul. But most people that work with me and know me well enough will just refer to me as JP. So I'm more than happy if you if you roll with that, Ian. JP. Yeah. The reason I ask is because um, I was I was born in 1978 in Ireland, and it was around the time that the Pope came to Ireland. I think it was 1979 he came. And around sort of late 78, early 79, I think every child in Ireland was called John Paul after the, after the Pope at the time. So it was about, I think in a class of 30, we had about 29 JPs. That's so, quite um, funny. I think, I think I've only ever met one other John Paul in my life. So that's interesting you say that. Maybe I have to visit Ireland. Well, I think what you need to do is find Irish people around the age of 40. And then um, you yeah, will right. find about every one and two will be called JP. Fantastic. All right. So John Paul joins us today. Uh, via Zoom. Uh, JP is based in Brisbane and I'm in Perth. And the reason I have JP on today from the University of Queensland is he has very similar interests to me, probably one of the more similar, the, the most similist, if that's a word, I'll make it up, to me in terms of sleep and performance and recovery research in rugby. Although JP does work with rugby league, which is similar but slightly different to rugby union. Is that a, is that a fair statement, JP? Yeah, I think they're relatively comparable sports. Obviously, they're, they're different sports for the people that know them well, but um, different sports. But I, I think our research interests are pretty similar. And um, from an understanding of you, I, I think the work we do is, is relatively similar as well. Yeah, very much so, yeah. So, JP, could you give us a short introduction to your education background and how you started your PhD in this area of sleep? Yeah, so as you mentioned, Ian, I'm, I'm currently a PhD student at the University of Queensland where I'm working uh, under Dr. Vince Kelly and, and also Dr. Shona Helson. Um, examining sleep and recovery in rugby league. Um, prior to that, I was I was based in a couple of different spots. So originally from Melbourne, where I grew up, and did my undergraduate down there, um, and then eventually an undergraduate honours looking at the lower body strength and power characteristics of Australian football. So I was lucky enough to be placed within the Carlton Football Club, which is a Australian rules football club down there. Um, following on from that, did a, a masters by research over at the University of Memphis, again looking at some some lower body strength and power characteristics and. As that was finishing up, I was lucky enough to be offered a position um, at the University of Queensland, which tied in with the Brisbane Broncos, as you mentioned, Ian. So that sort of sees me day-to-day in a performance science role, providing performance and recovery support to their, to their athletes. So now, JP, if I brought you to my wife's family in Melbourne, they would bow down yes. in front of you because they are all Carlton fans. So Is that right? Yeah, when they listen to this podcast, they would be like clapping. It's funny you said that because um, growing up in Melbourne, I was um, I was born into a Collingwood family and still have pretty pretty sort of close um, ties to the Collingwood Football Club, and I'm, I'm sure you know the the love between Collingwood and Carlton. So it was an interesting um, conversation with Dad the first time I walked in the door with a, with a Carlton football <laughs> Well, you you would be you'd be worshipped on my wife's side of the family because they're from uh, Warrnambool originally, but also from Melbourne um, yeah, right. on on both sides. So yeah, you would be you be worshipped down there. So it was always an interesting week uh, when we played Collingwood. Actually, I, I was walking around the gym and um, trying to sabotage things and, and get things <laughs> happening. I'm kidding, obviously, but yeah, it was, uh, it was very interesting. So, JP, um, what made you kind of gravitate more towards the sleep and recovery side of research? Traditionally, you know, a lot of people really like the kind of strength training, the power, get faster, get bigger. That's the kind of cool thing. Not many people go towards recovery. Why did you kind of head that way? It's a really good question. I think you make a really good point regarding the fact that it's perhaps not the sexiest part of, of performance and, uh, and research, but 
as both a, a practitioner from a sports science perspective and also a researcher, um, I've always been interested in, in ways that we can sort of improve performance and understand the factors that impact performance. Um, and I think as practitioners and also from the research perspective, I think we spend a lot of time in the past looking at things that perhaps um, are one percenters, so perhaps things that, that aren't going to make a big impact on performance. Whereas things like sleep, which perhaps in the past hasn't received a lot of attention, um, clearly is a fundamental of, of performance and also recovery. So that's really where my focus um, on how I came around to, to doing what I do at the moment. And um, as you know yourself, being involved in some of this research, it certainly gained some traction over the last five to ten years, and it's um, it's sort of grown exponentially. Yeah. So, so JP, can you give us a kind of an overview of your thesis and what you're trying to achieve or some of the research aims that, that you're looking at? Yeah. So, as I said previously, I'm based full time at the Broncos in a sports science uh, role and, and my thesis sort of ties into that. So, in general, my, my thesis is looking at sleep and recovery methods for professional rugby, rugby league athletes. If we dig a bit deeper, uh, more specifically, I'm looking at, at three things, if you like. So, number one, how we can best measure and understand sleep in these athletes. Number two, the factors that affect sleep in rugby league athletes. And then finally, strategies to improve sleep. So it sort of ties in all nicely together at the end. So they're the three main focuses for me. Now, in one of your recent papers, JP, um, that was published in the European Journal of Sports Science, you did speak about staff as well, um, not just players. Why were you interested in, in assessing staff sleep? Because this was quite, I yeah. thought it was quite interesting. It's quite, it was quite novel at the time and um, it stemmed from a conversation we were just having with, um, with a couple of colleagues and also one of my supervisors where um, we talked about, and I know this very well now, having sort of worked in professional sport for a, a sustained period of time, um, clearly the demands on athletes are very high when we talk about professional sports, but also the demands are quite tough on, on coaches and also performance stuff. So it's something we looked at in terms of, um, yes, it's important obviously for athletes to be performing at their best, but we want our staff and our coaches who obviously make really important decisions day to day. Um, we want those individuals to be turning up to work in a rested state and, and being able to make decisions um, as best as possible. So for us, it was a way of looking at that and then on from that paper, it's sort of intervening when necessary. Yeah, I, I was very interested in it. Um mainly because of my work uh, previously in mining industry and oil and gas, where a lot of times there is a focus on the shift workers or the people working in the field, but the people in the office are like, oh, it doesn't really affect us, but the people in the office are the ones making the decisions. And we, you know, we've, we found in previous work in mining that <laughs> the executives and the senior leaders were probably more fatigued than the people in the field because they were, you know, working 16, 17, 18 hour days, they had that stress, they may have been traveling and so on and so on. So I think that was a, uh, it's great that you looked at those um, differences in the paper uh, between the staff. Yeah, and building on from what you're saying, there's sort of two sides to it from a football perspective. There's number one, there's the performance staff who um, during the pre-season phase, so for us from November to February, are working considerable hours. So they're working successive days, they're working long hours within those days. And then when we talk about in-season, it sort of swings more towards the coaches where they're um, obviously working long hours. If we're going for a spell, we're perhaps not performing our best. They're spending extra hours at home going through video and, and trying to understand what's going on. So it's really important, um, we think, from an organisational standpoint, that those individuals are, are getting good sleep, which obviously is really important for their health and um, performance. 
So JP, in that paper, was there much of a difference between the staff and the players or was it quite similar? Uh, what I would say um, for those listeners that want to go out and read the paper, I'll give them a brief summation. Basically, what we found is that there was a, a bit of a shift for both groups, so both players and staff, when we compared the pre-season to the in-season period. So perhaps not overly surprising, but pre-season, which uh, sees earlier training sessions and more training sessions, saw both groups wake earlier and go to bed earlier, and obviously that shifts to a later time in-season. When you talk about the differences between the staff and the players, the key difference we saw was that um, staff tended to wake earlier than the players, which kind of makes sense from both a, a pre-season and in-season standpoint, because if we're having a training session at the Broncos at 8am, our staff need to be there to set up before the players. So what we found was generally our, our staff were waking earlier than the athletes. Okay, yeah. Very interesting. And on average, uh, JP, from this paper and others, what's the average amount of sleep that an elite rugby league player is achieving most nights? Yeah, it varies. And I mean, you can look at my work, you can look at some other work. Um, Heidi Thornton down at the Newcastle Knights has been pretty prolific at, at looking at sleep in her group. So um, it, it's going to vary between individuals, obviously. Um, yeah. But it's probably somewhere between, if we talk pure sleep time, we're looking at somewhere between seven to eight hours. Um, and that obviously changes depending on what night. So there's been some work and, and some of our work has shown this where um, if we're talking the night after a game, that's significantly reduced. But in general, across the course of a week, I'd estimate it'd be roughly seven to eight hours of sleep. Yeah, I think that's similar to what I found in, in Super Rugby and Rugby Union. It was averaging around between seven and seven and a half. But the night after the game was considerably lower. Um, yes. you know, down, down to like two to three hours in some people. So and I know there's some work being done in rugby league looking at the uh, the effects of post-game recovery sleep anyway. So, um, yep. yeah, pretty interesting. Excellent. Um, so, JP, I, I want to um, kind of move on to a paper that came out last week which which really highlighted and, and made, I suppose got my interest of why I wanted to speak to you this week because it's something that has not been researched well in in elite athletes and it's probably not been communicated very well in the general population. And it's around uh, sleep disordered breeding. And um, this is a paper that got published um, in the European Respiratory Journal, and it's called Sleep Disordered Breeding and Cephalometric Predictors in an Australian Rugby League Team. Did I pronounce that right? You did, you nailed it. Wow, took my time there. I've been practicing <laughs> that all week. So, uh, JP, this is a really interesting paper because there is very, very little in this. There's been some papers in the NFL in America, um, which shows some very high sleep-related breathing disorders. Um, there's a little bit in ice hockey coming out of the Scandinavian countries. But overall, you know, there's probably five decent papers, if even that, using objective measures of polysomnography to measure sleep. Most of the sleep disorders papers out there, as you would um, would know, are very subjective around questionnaires and asking people. Um, can you give us a little brief overview of this paper that you conducted in this in this rugby league thing? I can. So um, what we looked at is, um, as you mentioned, sleep disorder breathing. So we wanted to look at, and I'll give you your listeners a bit of an understanding of, of sort of the thinking behind this paper and where it evolved from. We, we as, as practitioners and sports scientists, obviously want to look at factors affecting sleep, and there's a number of different things we can um, modify and intervene with that potentially can improve sleep performance. But potentially one of the things as we sat down that we couldn't control was an individual who had um, an underlying issue, so a sleep 
a sleep disorder, and that might be something like obstructive sleep apnea. So we know, if we look at, and you know this yourself, Ian, if we look at the general population, we know roughly one in five adults has at least um, a mild obstructive sleep apnea, so some form of sleep disorder. And we know within that that, that men are most likely to have an issue and the prevalence also increases when we talk about um, individuals with larger body mass index or a large neck circumference. So um, as you mentioned, we don't know a lot of what's going around um, from a, an athletic standpoint, but um, certainly there's been some work done in um, the collegiate level of American football and also um, in the professional ranks. And within those studies that have been done in the early 2000s, what they found the researchers was that it was the um, the offensive and defensive linemen of the of those sports um, that were most susceptible. And if you think about American footballers and the offensive and defensive linemen, they're big individuals, they're quite large, they've got high BMIs, um, they've got quite a big neck. So for us, when we thought about some of the athletes we deal with on a day-to-day -day basis, it did make sense for us to have a bit of a um, sort of an exploration of, of our playing group and see if we could find anything. So um, we were quite lucky. Um, we partnered with Dr. Andrew Scott, who you mentioned earlier on, who is a sleep and respiratory physician at uh, the Wesley Hospital in Brisbane. Um, so he leads a research team. So we're lucky enough to, to build a relationship with him. And um, within that, we sent um, a large chunk of our athletes over to, to get screened for sleep disorders. Yeah, it's a very interesting uh, approach. And what you were saying about the offensive and um, at the linesman, um, there was a paper in 2010 by a guy called Rice in the US which, which looked at this um, and I don't think there was any differences in sleep or dead breathing disorder between the groups and I know in a paper that we have in review from the University of Western Australia in Super Rugby that we didn't find any differences between forwards and backs um, yes. and, and we, did, we did not find any relationship with BMI. Now, what really caught my eye in your paper is that you actually found, and we didn't use this data, and I, we, we tried to, but we didn't get it, and you know yourself in applied research, you take sometimes what you're given, um, mm -hmm. and the fact that we had 25 guys all spending night in the lab who we were reluctant to ask for more, more data, but you guys found a difference between skin fold thickness and, and that predicted AHI. Now, we found nothing with BMI, we found nothing with next circumference, but you guys looked at the skin fold thickness and that predicted AHI. And for those listening, AHI is apnea hypopnea index, which is basically a measure we use to kind of, um, it's like a criteria measure for, for a sleep-related breathing disorder. And you guys found a relationship with this, similar to what I did, but not with the next circumference and not with BMI, you found the same, but with the skin fold thickness. Can you, can you talk about that relationship? Yeah, it just kind of made sense for us. Obviously, um, BMI is, is a really good indication of someone's um, body composition, I guess. But when we're talking about athletes, what's probably more more important from a performance standpoint is um, their body fat percentage. So we wanted to, and we already do it as part of our program, um, we, we take a, a sum of eight skin folds. So we wanted to look at that into relationship with the AI change you mentioned. So um, we did find a bit of relationship there. So perhaps suggest that the BMI isn't sensitive enough to... Um, perhaps um, indicate a sleep disorder, but perhaps for um, your listeners out there dealing with athletes, if they have individuals that um, have high skin fold thickness across those eight sites or whatever sites they're using, um, perhaps that's a better indication of, of someone potentially with a sleep disorder. And was that skin fold thickness uh, related to any particularly any particular body part? Was there any, you know, was it was it fat in a certain area or? 
No, for me, I'd have to go back and look at the data, but from memory, um, we, we looked at um, we looked at a sum of those eight skin folds, um, and then when we dug a little bit deeper and broke it into certain segments of the body, there was actually no relationship there. So it, it, it appears to be a, a total skin fold thickness that's important for us. Battery, 90%. Mm. Excellent. Um, sorry, my, my speaker started going off here in the background and connected with Bluetooth, so... Um, that's all right. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Now, the other the other thing which is interesting here was the kind of ethnic differences. And sometimes when we speak about this, people look at us and go, "Why are you bringing ethnic origin into 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 science?" <laughs> and the reason I suppose people talk about this is because certain um, ethnic groups have different um, at risk factors for sleep apnea based upon the shape yep. of the mandible or the jawbone. Um, and so you guys looked at this difference between Polynesian and kind of European players, and we did something similar in our study, but we found no difference, but you guys did find a difference. Can, can you kind of discuss that a little bit more as well, JP? Yeah, so you mentioned, and I've sort of had those looks being given to me before, and I've, <laughs> I've made those comparisons, I understand what you're talking about, but when you look at um, research that's been done out of sport, there's been work that shows that different ethnicities are more susceptible to sleep disorders, so it seemed like a bit of a no-brainer to us. If you look at... Um, the NRL competition, which is our national competition in Australia, uh, we're looking at roughly 40% of the competition that are Polynesian athletes. So, um, and we're no different as a club, so I would estimate that we've got roughly that representation across our playing squad. So it made sense to us to, to have a bit of a look at um, differences between groups compared to the, the Polynesian versus um, European Australians. And as you sort of said, we found a bit of a difference between those two groups. The, the point I'd also make on that, and I don't want to start um, sort of shooting down my own paper, but we use quite a, a small sample size, so um, we're talking about 24 athletes here. So potentially, um, if we had a sample size double that or triple that, we may have found no difference between the two groups. So that's probably something I'll, I'll point out as well, is we're looking at a very small sample of Polynesian players and also a small sample of European Australians. But on the same hand too, JP, 24 NRL players is a lot. So for people who don't know, how many players is on an NRL, NRL team? Yeah, so approximately 40 we're looking at. So we, we had a large um, a large proportion of our squad. And within that 24, it, it was 24 guys that uh, are genuine NRL players. We weren't um, sort of drawing from the back streets. Um, so I certainly concur with what you're saying. And um, 24 professional players competing in the rally is quite a good sample, but potentially if we went to uh, another club in Sydney or um, down in Melbourne, we might find results that are slightly different. Yeah, because there's ter 13 players on a, on, a, on a pitch at any one time. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah. Yep. So 24 for me is, is, is quite good, you know. Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah, I'm going to pump you back up there, mate. I think that's... that's yeah, and the, I mean, I'll sort of argue my own point here is, is um, and, and you understand this yourself and anyone who's done this type of research would understand that the difficulty in, in performing such research, um, you, you mentioned that you did lab-based work, um, which is potentially even more complex. We were lucky enough to um, use a home-based device. So athletes went into the lab, got fitted out by Dr. Scott Steam and then returned home to sleep with the device on. Um, but we did this during a pre-season period of training. Um, we obviously can't do it in-season because um, we sort of risk the disturbance of sleep in-season, which for performance is not uh, ideal. So we did it during a pre-season period when we're, we're sort of training six days a week with long training days. So the difficulty in sort of performing this research needs to be, um, it needs to be pointed out. Yeah, and that's that's a good point. Um, that's exactly right. So you got like polysomnography, you got level one, which is a full in lab type um, PSG, which where you need beds, the whole equipment, very costly, 
you need all that real estate. You need sleep technicians to set people up. You need sleep technicians to watch people whilst they're asleep. And then there's a whole kind of uh, project in scoring that data before you can even put it in to look at it statistically. And then the next level is the PSG2, which is an excellent device as well, which the level you guys did, um, that sort of multi-channel, our home-based PSG, which is a little bit easier to manage, but still quite difficult. And then you've got all the scoring as well afterwards. So level one and two are kind of, level one would be the highest you can go. Level two is, is really good as well. And then you get down to level three, which is only be a couple of channels. And level four is typically your kind of actigraphy devices. Um, yeah. So yeah, and, and you're dead right as well, JP. Um, going to sleep with all these wires on, this, this device on can be quite, quite difficult for the athlete. And they generally don't yes. have a great night's sleep. And we did the very same thing. We actually did ours in the off season. Um, you know, so it wasn't even pre-season, it was in the off season and um, when the guys had finished super rugby, just for that same fact as we didn't want to interfere with anything else, you know, and every everybody who spent the night in the lab um, was given the next day off as well if they wished. Some guys went and lifted some weights or, you know, did some some light training, but most people um you know, we're given the opportunity to have the next day off. Yeah, sure. So, um, from this um, sleep disorder work, JP, you've been uh, you've you've conducted in this NRL team. And um, what sort of feedback did you give the team, and how was that received? And what some of the strategies or actions they may be doing going forward to address these sleep disorders? Yeah, so it's sort of mixed um, and very individualised, is what I'd say. So. Um, all players that visited the lab were given a, an individualised sleep report from um, Dr. Scott, the sleep physician, so that sort of indicated for, for all individuals, not those that just had sleep disorders, um, for all individuals they were given an understanding of, of how they slept on a typical night of sleep. Um, and then those individuals that had issues were offered the opportunity to, um, to visit Dr. Scott again and then potentially seek treatment or intervention. And they were very individualised because um, depending on the causative issue, um, the treatment plan is a little bit different. So that's sort of been an ongoing an ongoing plan for some of them um, in consultation with our doctors, with our performance staff, um, and obviously the athlete in question. JP, before we move on to the final kind of segment around this next study, um, I wanted to just ask you, could you just tell our listeners, if, if they are at home and they are listening and they think, you know, I may have a sleep disorder or they have poor sleep, what some of the characteristics or the, the signs that they, they might be able to observe in themselves or even their partner that may indicate a sleep disorder? Yeah, so there's a couple. Probably the, the, the big one for me, and this um, comes back to the athletes' idea, is if you find yourself waking up in the morning and you're not feeling refreshed, and particularly if you're getting, if you're in bed for eight or nine hours and you're sleeping through, but you're waking up the next morning and within sort of half an hour to an hour you're feeling um, tired and feel like you need more sleep, that's, that's probably a pretty good indication that potentially something's going on. Um, other things you can look at is. You happen to be sleeping with a partner and they're observing you during the night, um, stopping breathing. But they're probably the main two I look for, and particularly that first one I mentioned. Um, if you find you're not having restful sleep over a sustained period of time, but you feel like you're spending enough time in bed, potentially it might be worth some further investigation. Yeah, no, very good point. Yeah, and so if you do, if you do feel like you have any of those, it's worth speaking to a you know a sleep specialist or going to see your GP to get a referral. Absolutely. Speak to your GP, um, and then obviously they'll have links. Um, there's some pretty good sleep positions, certainly in Queensland. I can um, I can speak to Dr. Scott and his team at the Wesley Hospital, but um, I'm sure there's others around the state and um, around the country and internationally, I'm sure. So if you're finding yourself having an issue, um, it, it may be worth some further investigation. Excellent. JP, there's one last paper I wanted to touch on, which was um, 
which is something that's not looked at either. And it's, it's really interesting is around senior and, ju- and junior rugby league athletes. Um, can, you just, can you tell us what the difference is between a senior and a junior athlete? Yeah, so for us, yeah, for us, um, it was pretty simple. So senior players for us are guys that uh, have a professional contract, so they train full-time um, for the Brisbane Broncos, so they're coming in during the pre-season, five or six days a week, and then in-season, um, three or four days a week, and then competing for us or our affiliate club. So they were defined as um, professional senior players. Our junior players um, were drawn from our under-20 squad, so they were players that were um, training a little bit less, um, still competing for us under the Broncos title, but they're not quite full-time professional athletes yet. Uh, under the age of 20, so we classify those as junior athletes. Okay. And what was the main finding from this paper around um, the difference between the, the different groups? Yeah, so we looked at specifically um, intra-individual variability, so that's a bit of a, a tongue twister. Um, but basically what we're looking at is, is night-to-night variability when we, when we talk about that measure. So uh, there have been a number of papers that have looked at um, the intra-individual variability um, across different groups in the general population. We wanted to apply that to sport and we wanted to see if there was variability between the groups. So if you think about um, adolescents or young athletes, or young adults I should say, they're typically individuals that display different sleep patterns. So for example, um, I certainly know when I was an adolescent, I tended to go to bed a little bit later into the night and to sleep further into the day. Um, so these individuals sometimes can um, can struggle in terms of adapting to different situations. And I'll use the example of professional sport. So um, our under-20s athletes um, train throughout the day. Um, so they train in the afternoon and then go to uh, bed, in the case of this study, late into the night. Now that's not an issue because they can then sleep in the next morning. Where we though um, came into some issues was when some of those junior athletes all of a sudden were required to train with the senior squad. So they were called up to a senior training or playing squad and where they were typically going to bed at, let's say, midnight and waking up at 9am, all of a sudden they had to report to the training facility at 7am. So if they continue to have that same training schedule, um, it's fine, but as soon as that training schedule is changed, they need to then subsequently change their uh, sleep routine. So we looked at, within that specific study you're talking about, we looked at how sleep varied between the two groups, and what we found was pretty typical. So our senior players went to bed earlier, our senior players woke earlier. What was encouraging for us is both groups got sufficient sleep, so both groups above seven hours of sleep, which for us was a nice finding. But what we found is when we looked at that intra-individual variability, those junior players, night to night, were more variable with their sleep patterns, they're less consistent. Yeah, yeah. And that's a, that's a great finding and an interesting one as well, is, you know, a lot of times people kind of have this boom and bust approach to sleep where they deprive themselves for a few nights and then sleep in for a few days. And so looking at this kind of difference between these nights, I think is a really th- a really interesting thing because from a, a general sleep hygiene point of view, we always sort of preach about having consistency in sleep patterns and sleep habits. So n- nice pick up on this one. Yeah, I think it's something um, that, um, that I think we should all um, involved in, in sort of sleep and performance research. It's a really simple measure to, um, to calculate. So it's, it's not something that you need to measure uh, directly from the raw data. It's something we can calculate sort of post hoc if you like. So it's a really simple measure to add on um, to your, your sort of tables at the end. And I think it gives us some really important insight sometimes. And it's something we use um, week to week and month to month in the Broncos looking at guys that have um, highly variable sleep. Yeah, and it's 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 a key it's a key measure to use in redesigning or analysing your training sessions because early morning training sessions or the time of training sessions or the time of travel may be what's impacting that on certain days. Absolutely. Yeah. 
So JP, what's next? Um, what does 2018 hold for you in terms of research and next steps? Yeah, so um, we've got a few things on the go at the moment. Um, so 2018, hopefully see me graduate from a PhD, which would be nice, but um, as part of that, we'll, we'll sort of be tying in the end of this um, this research focus. So probably the big one we've got going at the moment is we recently finished a study looking at um, sleep hygiene strategies, so um, an intervention study, um, and looking at the impact that education can have on, on athletes and changing their behaviours. And there's been some work that sort of filter out over the past 12 to 18 months showing the positive effects um, from an acute perspective, when we talk about sleep hygiene education, so our, our work will sort of build on that, but um, more importantly, we'll sort of show what happens over a longer period of time after that acute intervention phase. So that's, that's probably the, the biggest one we've got going at the moment. Excellent. So, JP, uh, the final question, um, what, what for our listeners, what's your number one sleep do or sleep tip? Yeah, the biggest thing, and this will sort of go back to what I was talking about um, a couple of questions ago, the, the biggest do we sort of drum into our athletes, and I think it's important um, for the general population as well, it's just around consistency in the routine. So be consistent with your, your sleep and wake times, be consistent with your pre-bed routine, um, sort of cue your body to be um, prepared for bed, and I think you'll find you'll end up with a better night's sleep uh, in general. And on the back of that, what's your number one sleep don't or don't do? Yeah, for, for me, it's, it's surrounding um, electronic device use and um, I think not having your bed uh, and not having your phone in bed is a really critical one. Um, so in the lead up to bed, put your, your tablet away, put your phone away, put your laptop away um, and use that for the 30 minutes before bed to, to prepare yourself for bed. Um, a big one we tell our athletes, if they're using their phones for an alarm in the morning, set it to flight mode so they're not getting the disturbances of, of notifications, be it from um, Instagram, emails, text messages, phone calls, whatever, um, put that phone away. So just don't use your phone in bed as a general rule is, is always good for us. Excellent. JP, thanks very much for coming on the podcast today. We wish you all the best in 2018 with your research. And um, if listeners want to get in touch with you, it's uh, on Twitter at John Paul. Um, how do you pronounce your last name, JP? I was waiting for you to stumble on that. So, Kaya. Hard to say. John Paul K. Uh, we'll put that link in the show notes. And your uh, John Paul K. at broncos.com.au. And we also have your link here for your research profile as well. And we'll put up some links to the abstracts to your papers as well, JP, in the show notes. Beautiful. Thank you, Eddie. Thanks for having me. All right. Thanks very much. Thanks, Mike. Okay, and that was uh, episode number 17 with John Paul. Thanks, John Paul, for doing that episode. Really appreciate it. And we wish you all the best in the future with your PhD studies. Okay, so as I said, guys, on the intro, show notes will be over at sleepforperformance.com.au. If you'd like to get in touch with me, Ian Dunigan at sleepforperformance.com.au. Don't forget to check out the Facebook page and Twitter as well. And uh, you can follow some of my ramblings there or head over to Instagram as well at sleepforperform. I'm going to leave you with a song today by a Cuban artist called X. That's the letter X, Alfonso. And this song is called Reverse. Sounds a bit weird for the first minute but then uh, it kind of gets into it. Uh, it's in Spanish. It's a really cool song, really good artist. You might like it. If you do, go over to iTunes there and check out some of his music, Ex Alfonso. The reason I say this is because someone said to me recently, the best part of your podcast is the end of the, of the songs that you're putting on. So yeah, I thought I'd give a little intro to this song. Anyway, check it out. Reverse Ex Alfonso.
alguna vez pensaste en detener al tiempo y sus verdades poder cambiar las cosas que una vez causaron tantos males y volver atrás y volver atrás volver a ser la mano del pincel que pinta y embellece las tristezas Dejar de ser esclavos del poder, del dinero, el egoísmo y diferencias Y volver a amar Volver